0: There, there we, we go. There we <laughs> go. Man, I just felt my age right there. I was like, how do you do this? What button do you press? Jesus, off to a good start already.
1: That's what she said. So, of course, <laughs> as, soon as,
0: as, as soon as we start
1: doing this, the neighbors are trimming their bushes. So, even though, you know, I'm trying to do, do best with this internet situation that I'm having over here, I've got these fools over here trimming their, trimming their hedges.
0: So, you know. Oh, that's fine. I didn't even have a stand. So, you're literally stacked on books in between on a stool with the charger that's holding it in between the top of the stool and the bottom of the charger with the battery so we're just kind of making it work as we go along but that's sort of been our like ethos since we've met yeah yeah that's
1: all duct tape. (laughs) the whole thing is all duct tape do you remember how we met because i don't really i know that we 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 chatted about this a little bit yesterday big little jeffrey who was our tour manager yeah introduced us when, when I was with Ming and FS, but I don't remember specifically, you were saying like, ah, I rolled up on you hard with like some crazy video, you know, whatever, blah, it blah, was, blah, uh,
0: We were at the, it was on the, the, the Lancy, I think was the name of the place. It's where they do uh, Funk Bo- uh, Box uh, Mondays now. And uh, you guys had a show and I had reached out to Jeffrey about trying to link up with you guys. Cause obviously fan first, I liked where you guys were out with like the hip hop drum and bass, and turntablism all together. And uh, I was like, you know what? Let me just, let's try this thing called the internet and email and see if this works. <laughs> let's see if they'll reach out and come back. So I shot Jeffrey an email and he got back to me almost like instantaneously. Like it was pretty fast. And I was like, oh sure, yeah, I'll come out and check out the show. And uh, he comped me. I came up and I had, at the time, I was going to these uh, trade shows called ASR for skateboarding. When I was trying to figure out, could I make a living doing this DJ thing? Did I want to try to do something in skateboarding? And uh, long story short, we just kind of threw it out there and uh, had some fun. And basically the idea was to come show you this video, make you want me to go on the road with you. So I didn't know how it was going to work, but that was my goal at the end. And I think between enough drinks, enough of me being insane and just off the fucking books, you guys were like, you know what, yeah, do you want to come on tour with us? So here we are. Uh, I know,
1: I mean, that's but that's kind of the, you know, that's the magic of, like, having the balls to reach out to people, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: You know, I can't, I think, can't think of how many people in my career I connected with because I was the only person to, like, make the effort to, you know, to reach out and be like, hey, you know, I want to do that.
0: Yeah, how do you do it? Like, what's, like, I need a mentor, <laughs> teach me. And that's, like, I think one of the biggest things in anything that you've, anyone's ever wanted to do. Like, it's so much easier now. Like, it mm-hmm. was so terrifying to actually have to go up to that person. Like, I've met a lot of, uh, like, idols and people that I've wanted to talk to in the 90s. And it was so much more terrifying because you're at the club or you're on the subway. It just wasn't like now where it's like, you like their photo and you DM them and you're like, yo, I make music. Check out my SoundCloud page. It was like, I had to physically give you something. First off, I had to hope that you would, one, listen to my rant while I was half wasted or in the bag, probably this close talking to you in the face or in the ear because it was such a loud club. And then number two, you had to give them this physical article that they were going to have to hold on for the entire night until they got home. And then three, they had to actually remember the conversation, pull said tape out or video and actually hold on to that, which was another thing where you're like, come on. so
1: Do you remember, uh, I don't know if you were, were, you on the tour? Which tour were you on? But the one where, um, we would do smash the trash with the demos that people would give us.
0: Yes. So was, we I went on so two. It was that and, uh, the back to one. So it was like, to we, did right, we did
1: two, right. So the. The one thing that people used to do when we were on tour was they would want to give us like Dave rolled up on us and, and you know Chopper rolled up on us <laughs> and gave us this whatever. But this is New York, so it's a little bit different because in New York we just brought it home. Yeah. But when we were on tour, people would like want to give us their demos and like give us their stuff, and I used to honestly say to them, "Here's the deal: if you give this to me now, we're going to put it on in the van or in the camper." And we're going to listen to it. You've got about 15 seconds. And if it's not hot, we're going to just chuck it out the window. Like we're smashing trash. We're going to just smash it and it's going to be gone. You're better off waiting till we get off tour or contact Jeffrey and send us that thing. Because we'll sit down and actually listen through the songs that you send. I'm like, but in the van, like i got like a bunch of smelly dudes in there. We don't want to listen to your crappy music. You know, yeah. I was like, you, you've limited your chances down to, like, 1% of 1%. And then people would give it to us anyway, and then we would just destroy them.
0: We had it was a heavy crew, too, because it was uh, uh, Karsh Kale. Yeah. Oh, you were on that tour? Right. Yep. And then Napoleon Maddox was with us, too. We had a pretty, like, it was a, it was a heavy crew. And especially the first time going on the road with, like, a group, I was like, holy shit, there's all these people and it's it's so much fun when you you get to go behind the scenes and actually see the day-to-day because it's not as like glamour and glitz as it is now it was like what i learned from you was pretty much put on the rider what you're going to need for the day after tomorrow so if it was like (laughs) clean shirts alcohol cigarettes whatever you wanted you put that on your rider so you have it for the next stop so when you wake up in the morning you have like your Gatorade, your Pedialyte, whatever it is that you wanted, you knew now, like, okay, these are the things that I need to put on my rider from now on. Yeah, so exactly. Awesome.
1: Or, Or, or <laughs> if you, like, if that was what you were going to eat, if that was your meal, you need to make yeah. sure it was on there because otherwise, you know, you'd be, like, blind, drunk, looking looking for a sandwich in the middle. You know, it's easy when you're in New York or L.A. or someone like that, but you're in the middle of the country at 3 in the morning, nothing's open.
0: Oh, yeah. And we went to some odd spots, like, uh, it was the grog shop in Ohio, I remember specifically, because I had never been there before. And uh, when we were in Columbus, I had, or it was Columbus, I had the spiciest Thai right, food ever I, ever.
1: I remember food. that specifically. <laughs> it we was got so that Thai insane. food, and it I remember so... being on stage sweating. <laughs> and you know, like for me, when I eat really spicy food, it just uh, comes out. I eat the spicy food, and then half an hour later, I got to hit the bathroom. Like literally everything inside of me comes out. Like, that that's, was, my, that's the way my body does it. And I remember being like, I'm going to be on stage after yeah. this unreal spicy food, and I'm going to die. Like, I was sweating going on stage. That was a good, that was good. That's, I can't remember if that was Columbus.
0: It was, it was, it was either Columbus or it was, uh, it was, like, right outside. It was, like, somewhere around it. But I remember it was Ohio. It was, uh, eh, whatever. It was I had a bunch of photos, It was, like, the too. first
1: stop on the tour because we would drive out of New York I yeah. do remember, I now you're reminding me, because I do remember packing the van. And then, what people don't understand is that when you leave, if you're touring in a van or in a bus, you have to pack everything that you need, all the merch and everything, you pack it to the brim. There's not a single space. Like, literally, you have to figure out the pack, and then you have to unpack it and pack it again, because you're going to be doing the same thing in the middle of the night. You have to kind of remember how to pack it all. Otherwise, oh, yeah. you're half in the bag trying to pack up a van that's, like, packed to the brim. And, you know, we didn't have to do it after the first time. You guys had to do it. So I remember it doing it with you and day. Jeffrey. And then I remember you guys trying to get your skateboards in the van. Yeah. And there really wasn't room. And I was like, fuck is going to be their fucking skateboards. You know what I mean? And this was, like, your one, your one like, peace of mind, the skateboards, having yeah. the skateboards there. Which, you know, I have, of course uh, I understand now. But back then, I was like,
0: fuck this. Yeah, what the hell? I have a funny story about it, too. Uh, right when we first went on tour was right when I first met my wife Nadia and she had given me this crazy contraption called an iPod I don't know if you <laughs> ever heard of them and it was so yeah it was like this fucking thick and there were all these songs and I remember just listening in the back of the bus because I was like holy shit I just like kind of quit my job I just met this girl and now I'm just going on tour for the rest of the summer. Like, we're, I'm out for the next three and a half weeks. Insane. By the way, still have uh, that iPod, still has the music on it. And I remember the order of the songs that Nadia put on there. So it was just fun. This was amazing. like It was fun doing, like, a little bit of research. I had some photos that I was going to bring out, but I decided not to. For your sake, we'll just leave those away. But there were... Uh, Are those the photos from L.A.
1: when the guy comes out with his balls duct tape in the bikini?
0: No, I don't have. You know what? There was a lot that were blurred because clearly we were hammered most of the time (laughs) because none of us were driving. (laughs) But the other like funny ones that I have, one of the big ones is like uh, you guys wearing presidential masks.
1: Oh, right.
0: Which I thought was kind of crazy because we're talking this is over This is like 16, 17 years ago.
1: I mean, like, we were doing the anti-war, anti-Bush tour with Napoleon Solo, and we all came out in the Bush and Cheney, and I forget what the other, and ma- Rumsfeld masks, and we would do that skit. This is like, and I remember doing it in Texas, thinking, this is not going to go. <laughs> yeah, up. not going to
0: work. <laughs> and there were some hecklers there,
1: I remember that, but then I remember being like, you ain't from New York, you weren't yeah. there for nine don't come yeah, out and like... Go. You don't know. You want to try to pretend like, you know, you all know what's up with 9-11. You're living here in Texas. But um, it went over. We we survived.
0: Yeah. I still (laughs) have. uh, So I have some photos. I still have the tour book that Jeffrey made with all the tour dates. Yeah. And I'll send you some screenshots and some other stuff that I saved. Um, And then there's like a couple of other random things like the uh, Back to One uh cd that you guys made i still yeah. have that as well as the merch from it like you know you could buy the shirt and the cd i think a bunch of stuff i was trying to like pick it find it all yesterday but
1: that, that was the biggest scam ever that we we, we came up with on that so it wasn't a scam but it was like good good business which yeah. was we we called it getting the yuppie food stamps right you want to take a 20 dollar yeah. bill out of somebody's hand without having to give them cash yeah we'd give them we a shirt or a hat and a, and a CD just to grab it all, right? That was, <laughs> that was the best those, with those. And Didn't we get somebody to to, to sponsor that?
0: Uh, I, I don't remember. It was, it was a rough one. I remember you specifically telling me to make my own mix CD because you were like, if you make these CDs, it's just 100% profit in your pocket. So I wound up bringing uh, this jungle mix that I made probably 12 hours before we left and just ripped as many of those as I could. And, uh, those shirts from my friend, Steve McCarthy from Maestro Instruments. That's right. I and remember you had shirts. I was like, what is this guy? He's crazy. I brought my own merch. Which, I by love the that, way though. Funny story on my way to your studio in house kitchen. I had everything on a cart and wound up getting a ticket. For spitting on the subway, which I was like, get the fuck out of here. I have a fucking cart with 200 T-shirts right now, lady. I'm sweating. I don't do well in the heat. I'm dripping. I'm already through my first shirt. I wasn't taking a cab to your house. I was taking the train. So I'm coming from Brooklyn with this cart, with all my promo, all my T-shirts, all my CDs, my skateboard and my little backpack with like a couple pairs of underwear and a jacket, thinking that like I was going to make it. Wound up getting a ticket and I was like, sick. All right, this is going to be a fun couple of weeks. Here we go. Let's kick <laughs> off. Let's make it work. That
1: was, and that was, was that the Back to One tour or was that the, that was, a, what was the first one? The Infinite Justice tour. Was that the yeah. one with DJ Spooky?
0: Yes. Yes. Right. He came to a couple spots. He was on a couple of them. And I remember there was one, I think it was the, either the last or the first that we did, the hook in Red Hook which was like, I had never even heard of this club. And, and for those who don't know, Red Hook is like this blue collar, like really rough, or well, used to be, I guess. I think, and now there's an Ikea there. But back then there there wasn't. And uh, I remember just going to the hook and be like, where the fuck are we right now? Like we are in the middle of nowhere. And there's just this giant rave going on. You guys crushed it that night too, that was fun.
1: You know, you remember things better than I do, which is kind of good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well that's how it works teamwork you know it works that way with nadia and i it's like as long as one of us has half the details usually the other person can remember the other part of the details and then you go from there so
1: yeah someone's sort of cool keith the wiz zone dissect the style yeah that's right
2: yeah
1: <laughs> cool keith man I've, i haven't thought about cool keith in such a long time i, su- I you know whose name popped up the other day i was talking to zach from Tribe sector 9 and Logic popped into the thing. DJ Logic, I hadn't th- thought about him no in forever. Yeah, and I should have tried. Yeah, yeah, see what he's up to. He's still doing his thing, I guess.
0: Yeah, there was another guy that came with us, too. I should have probably done a little more research before this on all the tours. What, on,
1: on, the, on that
0: it was dialect
1: right wasn't it dialect it was not the- yeah and s-
0: it was and someone else i don't remember i forgot uh again we could i can go back and forth and just have old man brain the whole time but that was another we had like a bunch of other guys that came with us but that was a heavy that was like the first time i had ever like realized holy shit i can make this happen like you can reach out to people that you want to convince them to bring you on tour and learn like you guys basically were like the first of many mentors that I had. That was like this is how you do it. This is how you get into the business. I still even have the NPC that I got from you guys, the NPC two thousand. So, and that was like the first. You guys were like the first studio I ever went to before I ever went to Chung King or any of the other stu- or D and D. It was like this was like, you had the studio in your house. And I was like, holy shit. This is like, this is it. This is where they make all the music on those turntables. (laughs) This is where they practice. Like, this is how it's done. That's the drum machine. It was like my first insight into like, okay, this is how you do it. And this is how you do it yourself. If you don't want to be on a big label, you can do like Manhattan studios and just have your own space. Soundproof the walls and like, just have that. I mean, it was
1: so throw and go back then. And I think, you know, when you're growing up, I was grew up playing in rock and metal bands and stuff. So my my idea of making it would be to go to a big studio, and you, know, you go track a record in the studio. And I had done that a bunch of times in rock bands, but I always found it <clears throat> super. Uh, it was never what I thought it would be. It was stressful. The you could hear the money going. You know, as you were like, as the time is going by, you felt like all the money was coming out <laughs> the of your is pocket. Sticking. You you I wasn't it was never super creative for me in that situation because you're like coming up with like the parts. You know, like I wasn't prepared. You just in your mind mentally you don't realize like you gotta have everything worked out. As a young person, you just weren't really thinking that way. You're just thinking like big studio is gonna be awesome and blah 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 blah. And then you know, as you start to be able to get your own gear, because that was just at the point where you really could start to buy all of your own gear and have your own studios and have DAP machines and, and DA88s and ways of recording music in a studio you, that you put together. I mean, our studio was put together with like chewing gum and duct tape. We had That's multiple boards, you know, we had multiple like consoles, could do- dove chained together. I think we had a, like a Soundcraft Ghost and a Yamaha something the D88 machines, we were using studio or vision software before you could even record audio into a computer. It was just MIDI. So everything was like sort of linear. None of the Ming and FS albums were made the way you make records today. They weren't made random access, like you could just go back and do parts. You had to start at the beginning, do your sections, go through. I mean you could record, move things back and forth on the machine, but they were like linear mostly. It wasn't like Oh, let's cut and paste that section from that section and put it over there. And I think that that's how some of that music came out that way, which is like this linear weirdness down the road, sort of like skating. Yeah. Because skating, when you watch videos and you see people like do this round, like bunch of tricks, right? And they look super amazing. Oh, this guy's got this and to this and to this and to this and this. If you do something like that, you know how many takes it took to get, to that, get that clean take. That dude following you with a camera, but you—that's a linear thing. You actually have to hit those five tricks in order for it to work out, and that's kind of like how doing those Ming and FS records, were, where you had to like—they had to be the—it had to be the right pass, otherwise it wouldn't have—it didn't make it. Like it, one,
0: it. It's always one take. It's always one take, one try. Keep it going. Hope everything looks good. And you guys were the first ones also that had uh, reason. That was the first time I'd ever seen anyone use like. A computer to make beats or to record and that was also fun to me to watch the whole process of how you guys do it it was uh it's been a ride it was it's been a lot of fun watching the whole thing go down
1: so let's talk about you know we come off tour ming and fs disbands you end up over at the dc the dc shoes
0: no it was actually um time in Times square i was working with my uncle doing uh, lighting, staging, video walls for fashion shows, corporate industrial shows. And uh, that's how I got the time off. And then I just, after hanging out with you guys, I realized, you know, like, fuck this. Like, I want to do something else. I want to figure out what it is that I want to do. And, and Nadia, my girlfriend, now wife at the time, was super supportive in saying, well, what is it that you want to do? And I said, well, you know, it's, it's skateboarding and it's music. And like, these are the two things that I'm passionate about. And I got to figure out how I'm going to make this work for me and and turn this into something. Uh, So at the time I just started making like a shit ton of mixtapes and just kind of barraging every bar that I possibly could. And then on top of it, um, I got a job in Times Square, Uh, Billabong and Element opened this massive store.
1: That's what I was thinking of was the the Element store
0: and i literally just kind of was like all right i walked in and, and the store was half done and they had already picked all these people to be managers and district managers i knew nothing about retail at all so i just said you know what cool yeah sure i'll take the stock boy job i'm a college graduate and pretty fucking intelligent <laughs> and can probably spell like you know like the boss i was talking to wasn't exactly the sharpest pencil in the box but i was like you know what i, I can work my way through here and the whole idea was I wanted to work my way from this retail side to the corporate side. And I didn't know how I was going to do that, but I knew one way or another I would do that. And uh, I kind of, long story short, just weaseled my way through. And one of the big breakthroughs for me was um, I would pull, I figured out how they were playing music and they would play Sirius Satellite. And I decided that uh, the store was separated into like a billabond side and the element side. Billabon being surf, uh, element being skateboarding. Uh, Element being underworld Element, Harold Hunter, Julian Stranger, like OG, Cardiel, like just lots of skate. Uh, these guys were like combining hip hop graffiti and DJing and all my favorite things at the time. So I wanted to get in touch with the owner at that time. So what I figured I would do is I started playing my own mixes and shout out Stretch Armstrong and Bobito and playing 89 Tech nine just playing a lot of the music that they were playing in the store. And that attracted a different group. And at the time, Times Square wasn't as Disney-like as it was. It was sort of in between that like Peep Show and Disney. At the time, it was sort of, we were like right in the middle of the transition. And because we were open from 9 a.m. in the morning till midnight, you know, 10, 11 in the morning, you get a lot of characters that would come in there. And uh, a lot of record labels had their offices around there and people would walk by and hear the music and say, well, who's who's playing that music? And they'd be like, oh, you know, that's my boss over there. So what we wound up doing at the time is I didn't know that this was actually going to work, but I started soliciting record labels and saying, hey, I notice you have an album that's coming out next week. I will play said album till midnight and then everyone can go across the street and buy it at Virgin Megastore. That's when they had this for those who don't know, this store called Virgin Megastore. You go there to like Tower Records. And <laughs> it's so funny to using, say that, though. You physically use this paper to buy record CDs and vinyl. And uh, one of the biggest ones that we did was uh, uh, Redman had this album, uh, Red Gone Wild, that was coming out. So we had him come in at 11 and uh, kinetic, kinetic Energy from The Arsonist was our security guard. So we had this whole like hip hop connection there. And uh, the way we would work it was at 11 o'clock, the artist would come in, we'd play the album. He would sign only merchandise that you purchased at the store, and I would make it just the skateboards. So, like, the sales on the skateboard side would go up, so kind of partnering with everyone. You learn that shit win-win. from us. See,
1: that's some street coming yeah. in that stuff right that's, now. I'm that salesman.
0: hustle, man. It's like the layers of hustle. And then I added one other layer to it, and I said, you know, I don't want the CDs. I want all the vinyl. So I want all the I'll, I'll play whatever album you want. And some were good, some were bad, but I wanted all this stuff on vinyl. And that was the big thing for me. And the reason why I had so many records was just from college radio and those experiences. And like starting that, that I learned from you guys is just like hustling and trying to get it going. So from there, um, we kind of, let
1: me, let me just, let me pause you one second, because what's important about this hustle, right? And it's not the hustle, like stealing from people. It's the hustle of like, you know, Figuring out how to get your talent out there and make it work. With Ming and FS, one of the things we would find on tour is that, you know, people would come up to with, with like, bootleg merchandise and burn CDs and want us to sign that shit. And we would be like, get the fuck out of here. I'm not signing. You you're basically something. letting us know that you're stealing from us. I'm not signing that shit. Buy something and I'll sign <laughs> it. Like, I used to amaze me, right? Didn't that amaze you? Like, people would come up. Our biggest, our best thing, though, was when we did the thongs. Because people would come up by the thongs and then put them on and want us to sign the thongs. That was the biggest, that was a good
0: one. (laughs) That was most of the photos that I have from the tour. I wasn't going to say it. That's most of the photos I have from the tour, uh, which I'll share with you at another point in time, but those were a few that I found. But it was fun. So long story short, after making this connection with all the record labels, we started to move on. And the idea was that I was sort of growing out of the relationship with, and I met a lot of amazing people that I'm still friends with to this day, but I wasn't getting the attention I wanted from the corporate level because I was doing such a great job. I, I literally started as the stock boy and was now the general manager of this $40 million a year store, the largest store that they had. And I was trying to move on to the corporate side to do marketing. And this guy, John Gilly, who worked for Element, was super super, super instrumental in like being that next mentor and like moving me into the, like that business side of like, well, this is how things are done. And if you want to do marketing, then, you know, this is what you need to do. And once again, you'll hear this, this story constantly pop up. It's always about Nadia and her helping me and her big thing was helping me write again, not only in this point, but now helping me figure out how a marketing plan should look and what we should send long story short that didn't really fan out the way i wanted and they kind of manipulated my marketing plan and gave it to someone else in new york to move forward with so i was frustrated and looking for an out and a friend of mine uh this guy dave seltzer was also working at vans and he said hey there's this new opportunity that's going to come up there do you potentially wanna take this or you know do do you want to take a meeting about it um so literally nadia again helped me fix my resume (laughs) Shocker, behind every good man is a better woman. So that, that's the other side of this that's story. That's
1: the truth. That's the truth. We
0: all know this. So Especially for us motherfuckers. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We need that, man. We need that rock. So basically, uh, I sent the resume to Dave and he sent it to Steve Van Dorn, who's the owner of Vans. And literally less than 24 hours, I got this call and uh, I was beefing with the guys at the store because, because I was the general manager. I had this 12 to 9 shift. So it literally fucks your whole day up. You can't do anything before work. You go into work at noon. You don't get out till 9 PM. So then you still have to count out registers. It was like, it's just this nightmare schedule and I'm not making millions of dollars at this point. So it's like, I live in the greatest city in the world and I have nothing to do. I have the greatest woman in the world and I can't even hang out with her unless it's, you know, before 10 30 in the morning and, you know, later it just wasn't working for me and I needed an out and, uh, I literally got this phone message on like my old Razer flip phone. Remember those? Yeah. i actually had, like text the messages and I got this message and it was from Steve Van Doren saying he liked my resume and wanted to talk. And, uh, you know, I thought it was full of shit and just started laughing. <laughs> so uh, I called him back and like, we talked and I'll keep this part of the story lo- short because it could go on forever was we talked for almost five hours my general manager kept hitting me up like, where are you? You know, we need you. And Steve and I talked and he was like, I think you're amazing. I want to hire you. I'd like to fly you out to California tomorrow. And I was like, well, I'm going to be honest with you. I think you're full of shit. Um, you know, I just had a meeting with Mass Appeal Magazine. Fair enough. They were also in Red Hook, Brooklyn right. um, at that same spot, right down by the hook where you guys DJ'd. And uh, they had kind of been jerking me around and I'd been jerked around by Brooklyn limited music, like all these labels and, and magazines and double XL. And I was just kind of like jaded on a bunch of things. And I was like, I don't fucking believe you. And you know, like you're going to, you're going to fucking fly me out just to talk like whatever. Okay, cool, man. And then literally his secretary called me two hours later to set up that uh, flight. And uh, I couldn't actually take it because I, I couldn't just leave work without knowing that this was actually going to happen. So, Steve called me back and said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm coming out there. And two weeks later, and that's when they had started the relationship with the Maloof brothers and opened up that skate park in Flushing, Queens uh, with the Maloof Cup. So Steve came out there and we talked for a little bit and told me about this idea, about this like warehouse that him and uh, the president now, Doug Palladini, were coming up with. And essentially it was like this community hub for everyone in New York. They wanted to put their stake in the ground and the way they were going to do it was with this warehouse where they were going to showcase music, art, skateboarding, uh, and street culture. And they were looking for someone who had this background of like music, uh, as well as like club promotion and skateboarding and DJing. And it just kind of worked out perfectly. Uh, and that really like catapulted me to like a whole new level of, again, meeting Steve Van Dorn and like a new, having like that third chapter of meeting a mentor. And now Steve became that third person that I started working with who literally changed my entire life. And because of that, I've had the opportunity of changing millions of people's lives and helping all these people because he provided these opportunities and doors to do all this great stuff.
1: Let's talk about that. Talk about one of the things that I was amazed with when we caught up you know, I, I always thought of Vans as, you know, like the seminal skate shoe and, you know, the, all that part of it. And me being an artist, you know, we used to get a lot of free stuff, you know, from Burton, from, you know, Element, from, oh, Mangravis. You name it, if it was a cool company at that time during 90s hip hop, we were getting free shit from them. Um, you know, because it was part of the culture. So so my, my understanding of the brand was just like a real, you know, skate the real, you know, the real deal is like the real skate shoe. But what's going on there is so much more than merchandise. And what you're doing is so much more than merchandise. And that's really what I got super interested in like talking about, which was like developing skate parks and opportunities in places all over the country and all over the world, really. I don't know, yeah. like it, to me, it's amazing. Cause I remember the idea of someplace having a skate park would be like the wrong people moved into your neighborhood. Yeah. that was that's how skate parks were like seen like oh no there goes the neighborhood they're gonna put a skateboard spark here because they would always be like under a bridge someone made it like under an overpass and they, a bunch of people would like build their own thing until the cops took it down or somebody yeah. you know like obviously in LA people would have the empty they'd have the empty pool and people would skate the pools and all that where I grew up we had BMX so we would like because it was tons of fields and stuff everyone would ride their bikes and you know go to a construction site and set up jumps and light shit on fire and, you know, jump it in your bike, you know, do it, all that kind of stuff. But It wasn't much of a skating thing, but so the skating culture and the BMX culture, when that converged for me a little bit more was like when I was in the city. When I moved to Manhattan, then I could see the same culture that I saw in BMX I was seeing in skate culture and, like, people skating all kinds of weird random places in Williamsburg and, you know, places that no one would go to at the time. No one went to Williamsburg. I remember going to see nope. Dr. Israel in Williamsburg. He was this dread, you know, like kickboxer. We wanted him to work on an album with us. And he's walking around the streets of Williamsburg, which were like covered in glass, barefoot, because he was on his way to his kickboxing class. That place was gully. Now it's like more expensive than Manhattan. But, you know, so talk about t- talk about the getting involved and in, in how the outreach of Vans allows you allows you sort of like, to bring skate park culture and skate park's a different place so let's talk about that a bit
0: so the idea was i mean we have like a bunch of different things like the, the first big one or the most recent is uh vans park series so the idea is they're building parks around the world then having these world-class contests where they bring everyone in and then we leave the park as a legacy skate park so they have this park there forever for all the kids and we've done uh san paulo brazil We've done uh, right outside in Shells, outside of Paris, France. Um, there's one that they just built in Utah. And there's a few more that they're building around the world, um, which is a really big thing. Um, through Nadia, Nadia is from Barbados. I've had the opportunity to go there and help uh, this guy Paul with his DIY, which is, we started, again, like you were talking about building these parks, uh, this small DIY that's now they have a huge skate park in Barbados and it was we were always joking laughing that we said we wanted to move to Barbados open a skate park and like teach tourists like tourist kids lessons you know but now skateboarding is becoming this massive like it's not just it, you're not the unpopular kid at school who gets beat up for skateboarding it's skateboarding is huge right now and everybody's doing it it's big it's kind of uh, it's amazing to just see the transformation it's taken And through working at Vans, I've had the opportunity. We uh, just helped build a skate park in Kingston and we helped build the rec center there. And then in Barbados, uh, what I did for Go Skateboarding Day last year was I uh, bought 50 completes. uh, Well, I bought the parts for 50 complete skateboards. I invited everyone at Vans uh, headquarters because I now live in Long Beach, California and work at the Vans uh, corporate headquarters. And we had all the employees build skateboards so they learned how to build a skateboard and then we had skateboard lessons so everyone who'd never skateboarded at work could skateboard and learn how to skate and then we took those boards and then shipped them to Barbados so it was like 20 of the skateboards were slightly used because everyone got to use them and you know and like their basic tricks just pumping and pushing and then through that I got to now send 50 boards to this grand opening of the skate park so every kid not only got a skateboard, but they got shoes, they got board shorts and they got helmets. So now they almost like it's almost like here's the starter kit to go skateboard. Like we want you like I let's see what you can do. Like get out there and have fun because that's really what it's all about is it's this new well, it's not this new sport, but it's like people are starting to realize like I don't need anyone else to do it. I don't need a field or like some place to do it. Like I can literally walk outside my house and Meet millions of people from all over the world. Like that's the, the joke about skateboarding is like, we know someone in every city, everywhere. It's like the secret society. And if yeah. you're part of it, you know where the skate park is. And if you go there, chances are you can find someone, m- meet up with them and they will let you stay at their house. They will also cook food for you. Like, there's <laughs> like, like it's, like, it's like hardcore
1: and punk culture. It's the same thing. Yeah. I, we, we used to sell a ton of mixtapes through skate shops. Yeah. That was, like, another place for us to sell. Like, I, well, I was always looking for these, like, micro communities. And Skate Shops was, was like, another micro, like, before when record stores were sort of going away. But Skate Shops were the next micro community of, of, you know, like-minded people who listened to very similar music, whether it was hip-hop or punk or underground shit. So you could sell diverse mixtapes through those stores. And, they would, you know, you'd sell them 10 or even put them on consignment. Yeah. You know, I, I would just like send out 500 tapes around the country to skate shops. I wasn't even skating at the time, you know, so it's, it is a network. It's a crazy network.
0: And it's, it just keeps growing and growing. And as we go, my goal is to literally have like this, uh, a friend in every city around the world. So no matter where you go, if you hit me up, I'm like, Oh, I got a guy. This is the dude hit him up. And it's been fun to like use skateboarding as this vehicle to kind of, Push me around and now fortunately well, not now because we're not going anywhere but before that <laughs> i i started uh you know kind of this resurgence of djing again and now djing a lot of the after parties for those bigger events that vans is doing so i kind of get to showcase this rad 90s hip-hop and drum and bass to this now resurging like, like people are back into that 90s like i'm suddenly cool again fatigues and, you know, 90s hip hop and, and, and Raga Jungle are cool. So it's like I'm um, back on the map as, you know, like this dude who knows what's going on, which nothing's changed. It's still the same shit, still doing the same stuff. I mean, that's a, it, that's,
1: it's golden era hip hop, golden era, you know, drum jungle and drum and bass. So if you of have course. it, you have it. I mean, I have none of those records anymore. I, I traded all my records. I gave them to some guy who worked at Ikea. Ikea, like when I was moving from Hell's Kitchen to my next place, I had about 5,000 records And I wanted to get rid of them. And I wanted to give them away. I didn't want to sell them. Because I didn't want people to pick and choose the records. I want to spend that time. So I literally, I don't remember how I did this. But I posted somewhere, like, got 5,000 records. Have to come and pick them up in one shot. No picking through the records. No dumping them on the street. And some weird dude with these really thick glasses came. And I could tell that he was a digger. But I was like, I don't care. Let him dig at home. And it turned out that he was, it turned out that he worked at, Oh, he worked at the container store and he was like, dude, if you ever need anything from the container store, i get like a mad discount there and I was like, you know what, dude? I do need things from the container store because I'm moving into a new apartment Let's and, my trade. and my girlfriend and I, who's now my wife, like the same thing we went and just got like all this container store shit for our new closet when we moved to he got all these great records, but I got new closets
0: <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say I think that was a bad deal and I think he had gotten the better, the better deal on he, that one
1: But I, let me tell you holistically though, don't forget like this is where we had gone from doing all vinyl stuff to, you know, being di- digital turntable stuff. So at that point my mind had already moved on to like the digital turntable world and the world of like digital music, because lugging that those records around the country for 10 years, really, I was done with that. And then Ming and FS was finished. I was with this new girlfriend. I was like, I don't want to bring these records. They felt like baggage to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, there's some records in there. There's like all the jungle stuff that I wish I had now, the suburban bass stuff, you know, like Ray Keith, just stuff that you can't find digitally anymore. I wish I had it, but I don't know that I really wish I physically had it. I wish I had it digitally. And I remember we had Jeffrey transfer a ton of records onto a drive, but the, that drive disappeared. And I wonder where it went. But, you know,
0: I'll make you a deal. I have those records, and I will digitize them for you if you give me the stuff you got from the container store. So we do like a full circle. let <laughs> do like a full circle. I don't have do a, like from a the Container a Store anymore.
1: stuff. I'll I just, I just want files. all those records. I just want all those <laughs> records. I, don't, I can give you something else. I'll give you advice.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. I like that. I like that.
1: <laughs> Yo, let's, is Nadia there?
0: I don't know. Nadia. Are you uh, around? Yeah, she's here. I see her coming around. I oh, wanna. No, I wanna. I'm, bring in the, bring I'm bringing in their. The, bring in the, in the, the, I'm bringing the, I'm bringing
1: half. in the real. I'm bringing in the real heat now. That's who's right.
2: The, who's the team? I'm the team. Yeah,
1: yeah. There she is.
2: Yo, it's been Man, flowers. you don't she's you look seen you here. look
1: the same as yesterday. Holy cow! <laughs> Black don't crack. We already <laughs> know that. That's what
2: That's
1: they, what they say. say.
0: That's right. <laughs>
1: Um, it's funny. It's you know. It's because you've been around for almost the whole process since I've known Dave, and it, it's 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 funny to see all of us moving on to different you know different things as we move on into history. But the other day you posted something that really meant a lot to me, and it was about being black in the punk rock rock and music scene and how you've been treated. So it, I mean, obviously it's come up because of everything that's going on, but you the way that you described your experience. And still, to this day, it's probably the same experience as being sort of this odd person out, you know, fan of the music. You feel at home with the music, but people are always kind of separating you from the music. I had a friend in high school who had the same exact experience. And it's because I never thought of her as any different, when she explained to me one day or made a comment about, she, this is exactly how she said it. And it took me a minute to, to figure it out. We were hanging out. One day, I guess we had come back from a show. It was maybe the hardcore Super Bowl or some shit like that in in the city we lived in Long Island. And she said to me, "You don't care, do you?" I was like, "What do you mean? I don't care. I, I care about what?" She was like, "You don't care. You know." And I was like, "No, I don't know. What do you mean? Like, I thought she meant like I didn't care about her as a friend or something like that, or like something I said. You know?" She's like, "You don't care that I'm black." And I was so, I don't know, taken back by the, like, whiteness of myself to not, un- like, I was like, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? Because, you know, like, you're, you're, you're like family with everybody, you know what I mean? Like, but she, because her experience was, even though I'm down with everybody and I'm down with the music and that's my thing, we'd go to a metal show and, you know, and I guess people would look at her funny mm-hmm. and give her the eyes that I didn't notice because I wasn't paying attention. Now, of course, yeah. after that, I did notice and I did pay attention and it, it changed everything for me in a lot of ways, but I almost want you to read your post because it's so <laughs> perfect. But like, do you, it's a, it's, a, it's an important thing to talk about because I think right now, with everything that's turning back up again and people are turning the the, the light on stuff and, and, the you know, like talking about race relations and talking about how, you know, overt and covert racism, I think what you're talking about is so covert for people mm-hmm. who don't think that they're racist who don't feel negative um, energy towards people of color d- different nationalities but don't notice the things what it means not to be white right what it means not okay. to actually have to feel that and so here, I mean so speak on your post a little bit if you don't mind
2: i mean i mean i could read it verbatim i mean it took me a a long like i literally wrote like probably a novel of like all the points i wanted to cover and i mean i can backtrack like i wasn't even going to post anything i wasn't going to say anything um you know it was really really hard and i am still mentally struggling through this whole thing of what's happening and I, i have done this even back in new york you know, marching and dealing with it. But, you know, somehow, some way, maybe it's, you put the pandemic on top of that. It's like all compounded. It's like a mental, it's a mental screw up. So I wasn't even going to post anything. I saw all my friends posting, you know, cause they're good allies out there posting everything that they can. Um, and then I had a conversation with my mom, not my mom, my sister and, uh, my cousin in Barbados, and they're like, you have a different perspective because look at most of your friends, look at the, like, the things you're into. You follow a lot of bands and you follow a lot of like, white, quote unquote, white culture. Yeah,
1: yeah. So
2: you have a unique perspective that people might not want to address race or don't know how to address race. And you can give them that perspective. And so I came up with distilling all of that down into the post that I did, where, you know, just literally going to a show and there being people who would be looking at you weird or might, you know, give you a shoulder bump on the weight of the bar or something like that and just kind of just stare at you like you're a unicorn. And I've been all over the world and have been stared at like a unicorn all of my life.
1: <laughs> but... No offense, you are a bit of a unicorn, and that's a good thing. My daughter is like a huge unicorn fan, but that, yeah. but that concept, like, because Dave and I were talking about it briefly, which is, you know, we, my whole music background is about black culture, and all music is basically black culture, yeah. and and we and black art, all this stuff is, it's, it's, it permeates my being, like, and I, but I was never. I've never been to a show, hip-hop show, whatever, reggae show, whatever it may be, and never felt out of place. You know, if I'm the the weird gangly white dude at a a reggae show, I'm cool with that. Right. Right? And I think that that's a white privilege thing, which is like, you know, I don't feel out of place. I don't feel out of place anywhere I go. I mean, I live in Harlem now. I felt a little out of place when I first moved to Harlem, because that was the first time I was primarily living in a place where Mm -hmm. there were very few white people... And also there were people who were angry that I was there. So that was the first time in my life where I was like, oh, this is really in my face now. Okay, now I know what it's like to be the other way around, which is people are angry that you're there because for a different reason.
2: And I mean, also, when you're talking about reggae versus like a hip hop culture, like I think a lot of the Caribbean culture, because we're so mixed up that it's kind of not. It's like, oh yeah, whatever. That's that white dude, you know. It's not even a a thing, you know. Whereas, like, depending on what underground shows you go in, hip hop's kind of like, uh, I guess you know somebody. That's why he's here. And then it's kind of like, <laughs> all right, move on, you know.
0: He must be an A R. Yeah.
2: But like, he must be an A R.
0: Right? <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> Somebody's getting signed today, right? Yeah. No, but like, think about going to like an underground punk show when I was younger, and I mean, of course, as I get older and older and more aware of these things, the harder and harder it got, but like going to like CBGB show and you didn't know, you're like, well, is this a trad skinhead band or it is a real skinhead band, you know? And even then you're still like, I'm not sure. Like even going to like, geez, I remember going to like a, ble- a bad religion show and getting like these stares from these guys. Cause again, on top of that, you're primarily in like a white male show. Right. Um, It's just another level of being female and a black female at those shows and wanting to head towards the pit. And you're like, not even trying to think about it. And then as you get older, you're like, oh, my God, like, was that extra aggression against me? Like, was it extra aggression when, you know, I was squeezed out of an area? Like, so all of that kind of stuff does affect you, whereas, you know, your friends around you, might have never experienced that, or maybe at a lesser scale. So, um you know, like I said, it comes with age and recognizing what the things you have to go through. But you know, at the at the same time, you can't let it affect you because m- bell that music meant so much to me. You know, it means yeah. everything to me. It saved literally saved my life. I would not be here on this planet <laughs> if I did not discover the music. I did like. Thanks, big up to Soundgarden and how much they have saved my life and brought me into rediscovering music. I mean, I grew up with music all my life. My parents played tons of music of all styles. Like, yeah, I can sing Garth Brooks, you know, until the cows come home. <laughs> Thanks, Mom, for all of that. But, you know, like, so I had that. But it was like then when I needed it the most, discovering a whole new genre of music brought me right back into learning and wanting to like involve myself in music all over again. So if I had to let just a few assholes at shows affect me because I was the black girl, then who knows what path I would have taken. So, you know, you kind of have to like, let it go, but it's sad that you have to do that. You have to kind of say, well, you know what? screw it people are going to be racist and i'm just going to have to deal with it like it's it's unfortunate it's really unfortunate
1: yeah, I, I thought one thing that's in, not to yeah it is 100 percent. i'm 100 percent with you one thing that i think is interesting and maybe it's just population density in, in in the way the makeup of america and just that kind of thing but you know just the the ratios of of diversity at shows and how that you know because i've known you know, you go to a hip-hop show, it's primarily white people, depending on the style of hip-hop and where you see it. But it's always been primarily white people. You know, you go to a good underground KRS-One yes. show, and there's a really good mix of people because everybody was trying to be an MC and show, you know, everyone's like, wants to get on the mic and all that kind of thing. But, you know, and a reggae show is always very, very mixed. Very, you know, because you know, you, everyone comes out. All, everyone from the different islands comes out. It's not just Jamaican thing. It's like, ah, it's a, and, you know, you yeah. go and you're like, oh, my God, where did all these people come from? <laughs> Well, but, like, my I yeah. as a kid when i would come up from long island going into the hardcore super bowl all of a sudden there would be my people as well you know people in their pin pants and the doc martens and whatever and i used to hang out with his i guess he was a black skinhead because that's what he called himself his name it was phil mm-hmm. he would come in with the with the rings you know spikes on his fingers and he had the pin black jeans and <laughs> his leather jacket and he was and he was hardcore i mean he was like a tough dude yeah. i remember when i'd shake phil's hand I would think to myself, he's such a large individual that he could just crinkle me. Like, do you know (laughs) what I mean? Like, as a man, you don't often think to yourself like this. Other man could kill me in a second. But he was like, you know, we would go to these shows moshing around, and Phil would, you know, he'd be in the middle, just like you're saying, like in the because everyone would like want to like get up with Phil because Phil is huge. Mm -hmm. And I wonder. And I never thought of it, but I, like, I think he owned the blackness of being a hardcore person in a black, you know, like in that... Because there wouldn't be a lot of people. Yeah, but in the, bands of people. There would, in the bands there would be, there'd be mixed bands, there you know bad brains, yeah. there'd be all these different bands that were mixed personnel. I was always surprised there was less black people in, this, in, the, new, in the city shows. Mm-hmm. I expected to come in and it would be like a really diverse show because if you came in... Like if I go see Fishbone... In the city, I'd expect, okay, this is going to be a different show than when I saw Fishbone and Stony Brook University.
2: Yeah, But yeah. no, it
1: would be the same crowd. It would be the same yeah. sort of like, even though Fishbone is basically ripping off soul records and mixing <laughs> it with punk rock. I mean, like you can go, now that I'm older, Dave, we should talk about digging. But now that I'm older, I hear all of the records that Fishbone stole to make their records. And back then yeah. as a white kid, I was like, oh my God, this is the, like the most funky shit ever. And then you realize they're like, this is verbatim other music. Well, that's where they
2: started, right? Isn't that like, they started with like the soul and jazz kind of just like Bad Brains did. And they're like, what's this sound? And then incorporate the two, you know?
1: Yeah, totally. Always
2: what I like to say is like the two things you put together make the best music. I mean, geez, if you want to talk about hip hop, then talk about Beastie Boys and where they started and what they combined. And then you put the two together. I mean, we won't talk about like the Limp Biscuits out there, but...
1: (laughs) I mean, oh, that's, yeah, that's, so rad. that's, but that's pro, but that's program rock. I think eventually yeah. once we, Dave and I talked about this too, cause he was whining a little bit the other day to me about where music is gone and there's not this like legacy of new music. And, and, and my, my, from being in the music business long enough in any business, when there is an underground thing that happens or a new thing that happens or, or creation of something new, once corporations and people learn how to monetize that and, and get every single day Sent out of that thing, the music becomes programmed Mm -hmm. or or homogenized. If it's like, you know, food, whatever, culture, it becomes homogenized in such a way that it reaches the maximum amount of people for that style. That's where you get the limp biscuits of the world, and that's Mm -hmm. where you get these things that are like hit a lot more people, aren't seen as credible by the real fans, but they sell an unbelievable amount of tickets and merch and all this other stuff. It's because it hits a large swath of people. And so you know, you, we're all sort of sad when like, for me that happened with Red Hot Chili Peppers. I loved Red Hot Chili Peppers up until maybe Blood Sugar Sex Magic and then that was it for me. Then the rest <laughs> yeah. of the world discovered the chili peppers and they became bigger as, you know, like like Metallica, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. But I mean, also what, you know, fast forward to today, there's a lot of new music that, and I think, you know, the shift out of the radio culture into you know streaming services and um you know the spotify's and soundclouds of the world there's a lot more risk in what people are doing in all genres of music and you're also seeing a good cross-section of many different um people making that music and coming together to make that music i mean you have like filipino djs in like rappers out there who are making some amazing music and you have like girls who are heading black girls who are heading up metal bands who are also making amazing music and it's it's you kind of have to still dig for it but it's becoming bigger and bigger that they're just crossing over i mean you even yeah. see it in some of like the younger rappers today regardless if you like their music or not they're definitely crossing into different parts of genres and stuff you know and how they dress and what they do and what they say and what they listen to and what they're inspired by. So the
1: the question is, is, is it, you know, it's, it's large and it's genre bending, but is it, is it timeless? That's the, that's kind of the, does it have the timeless factor of, let's say like a black Sabbath or a Stevie wonder or a James Brown or a steel pulse, you know, like those, those, those artists are never going to go, never, it will never go away. They're always like dipping your bread in the original gravy and all that. Um, and Dave, I know you've been like, we have, we have five minutes left. So I wanna get to, in the last two minutes, I wanna do this fast question thing. And since you're both sitting there, I'm gonna ask you both to answer and don't answer the same point. Like just don't listen to each other and just answer. All right, I do this every time. <clears throat> okay. Uh, all right, and, and, and faith or science? Nadia, you start.
2: Science. Definitely science, 100%. Chopper?
0: Well, obviously, I'm going to have to go with science as well. But for argument's sake, I'll say faith, just to fuck No, 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 no,
1: no, 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 no. We're not going to play like that. Don't, don't okay, fine, science, science. We already know who wears the pants. We already know that. We don't I mean, need that. Exactly. We, we don't yeah. need to prove that. Did
0: you listen to the first fifty minutes? It's all about. I was an idiot until I met this woman, and she did everything behind the scenes. So that's why we're here now. Everybody you know, to your credit,
1: that. and to both of you, you both. What, what I love about the two of you is that you fought together. I mean, my girlfriend and I. She's my wife now. We have two kids. We did the same thing, yeah. different stages of our life. But like, it always takes somebody to believe in your creativity to allow you to, to take chances. That may, lets you go out and do that extra thing that you might not have done if somebody wasn't like, just fucking call them. Just do right. it. You can exactly. do this, you can do this. And you've done so many crazy good things, Dave. It's, it's you know, it's pretty amazing. So you can't give her all the credit. <laughs> you can give her, you can give her a, a lot of credit. You still have to show up. I just
2: push them off the edge. I push I them off the do. edge so you can fly. Right, right? of That's course. How it works. Yeah,
1: A slight nudge. A slight nudge. All right, let me, let me get these in. Raver Festival. <laughs> <Brave. Rave. laughs> you gotta do
0: it at the same time. It's one, two, three, answer. That's how we'll do it from now on.
1: Ocean, lake, or desert? Ocean. Ocean. Alright. <laughs> Acid or mushrooms? Mushrooms. mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> big room or small room? Big room.
2: <laughs> small room. Small room.
1: want the big room. That's why it works. Alright, what's your superpower?
2: Oh. Superpower? Seeing through people, a hundred percent. Yeah, I can. I can see from a mile away danger coming at me. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good
0: one. My superpower is going into any record store where there's thousands of records and knowing which crate has that one record that I've been looking for forever. That's there it, right there. Yeah. Right. Right up.
1: <laughs> How would you incorrectly describe your job?
2: Oof. <laughs>
0: I got to see who's watching first before I answer that one. I know, like, what?
2: <laughs> Incorrectly describing my job. Um, shit. Uh,
0: meeting for the meeting. About the meeting. Let's go to the meeting. <laughs> you guys want to have a meeting? All right, let's set up a meeting.
2: Oh, working for the real estate cigarette company. That's what I
0: do. What animals should
1: survive if only one can survive? Crows. Dogs. <laughs> Crows are really smart. People don't know that.
2: They're extremely smart. My favorite animal. I, got I was going to say
1: cat, cat or dog. You already said Dogs. dogs. Um, if not music, then what? Art.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Art.
1: Um, favorite meal?
0: Pizza. Dumplings. Hunter or gatherer? New York pizza. Ooh, yeah.
2: Hunter or gatherer? Gatherer. Hunter. What's the last
1: gift you gave someone? Uh, oh, records. Last gift I
2: gave. Alcohol, shit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> do you have a? Being from New York, do
2: you,
0: do you have a favorite deli?
2: Ooh.
0: I have a favorite sandwich. Like uh, a
2: vaselka. Does that count?
0: Yeah, paella would work. That's yeah. That would All work. right, I'll give, that that. Yeah, I'll give you
2: that. It'll see me that.
0: Um
1: favorite metal band.
2: Oh, today? Today would have to be uh I'm listening to old school Mastodon again. Going back there, so I'll just say today. <laughs> but huh? of all time? Black Sabbath 100%.
0: Yeah, Black.
1: That- <laughs> all right, la- the last one. What genre are The Talking Heads?
2: Ooh, that's a hard that's a hard question. You want to go you-
1: Universal?
2: no wave but that's not
1: no really wave. no wave <laughs> all right guys we have three seconds this was amazing this is the first one where i had two people on at the same time but two people who make a better one so
0: this was yeah, great that's right into i the hope gang. to see you
1: guys soon i'll post this up usually my internet is messed up right now so what i usually do is i'll i'll edit this a little bit cut off the ends to get rid of the extra stuff and i repost it and i'll send you links to all that later on but thank you awesome. so much have an amazing weekend yeah! be safe so see so you see soon, me.
0: guys. Be safe.